following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13 of Sauron Defeated. And I am, uh, by the way, really confident that we're going to finish this book just as I'd planned. Not originally, you know, but plan B in finishing this book. Um, uh, yeah, tonight will totally be the penultimate session on uh, the Notion Club papers, and then we'll do three sessions on the Drowning of Andunia, and then we're good. I feel confident. I like this plan. Um, anyway, so uh, tonight is going to be uh, pretty exciting. We're going to get to, well, if all goes well, we're going to get to the end of um, uh, the, uh, the, the actual part of the Notion Club papers that Tolkien wrote. Uh, that's the goal uh, for tonight. Uh, let me do a couple quick announcements first. Uh, uh, three things. The first two are familiar things, but just reminders. Our two upcoming moots, New England moot and Middle moot. New England moot on the 29th of September, just a week and a half from now, uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts, and then Middle moot on the 12th of October uh, in uh, Waterloo, Iowa. For both of them, the registration is going to be open right up to the uh, the point of the moot, but if you want to make sure to get lunch uh, when you're there, you should uh, make sure to register prior to that. Um, so, uh, yes, Tomas, there are activities planned, but I have to admit I have not yet been briefed about them, so I will get back to you guys next week uh, on a little bit more detail about that, but there is going to be definitely stuff happening in... in I'm, I'm definitely going to be there on Saturday. Um, uh, we're certainly planning for for that to be happening. So we'll be in communication and, and I'll let you guys know more details about that uh, next week for sure. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, so those two things coming up, our moots are, 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 are coming upon us, but there is something coming upon us even sooner than either one of our moots. And that is the fall fundraising campaign. Uh, it is time for our... Oh, goodness. What is this? Our seventh annual, I think? Seventh annual fall fundraising campaign uh, for Signum University? Uh, so anyway, it's going to be um, it's going to be uh, really cool. I always look forward to our fall fundraising time. Uh, lots of fun things planned and always a time, you know, I always really like the time in the fall to shift toward to just like thanking everybody for the support that they have given to Signum University. We're going to be doing a lot of things, uh, and including, uh, of course, uh, some, uh, you know, some of our special events like my annual Lotro marathon and things like that. Um, but, um, but also of course the state of the university address where I'm going to be talking about what's coming next for Signum University, because we are at a really important point, uh, in Signum's history. And we are, excited about taking some really big steps forward into the new world uh, here, new world uh, of higher education. So uh, very, very exciting stuff. Looking forward to telling you guys all about that. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so that's coming up. The opening event of that, of course, is on Hobbit Day. So on Hobbit Day, which is this coming Sunday, September 22nd. Um, so that's, yeah, this, this very Sunday as is. We're going to do our kickoff event, uh, our Hobbit Day reading slash campaign kickoff, kickoff event. So that's going to be happening at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time 
uh, on Sunday, the 22nd of September. So uh, I hope you'll be able to join me for that. I'll be talking about the, the campaign. I'll be uh, talking about some of the awesome things that we accomplished this past year, uh, made entirely possible by you guys and your generosity. Uh, so I'll kind of do a little report on uh, what what you guys did, what you guys uh, enabled us to accomplish this past year, because this past year was a really awesome year uh, for you know the generosity of our donors and for what uh, for sort of for Signum and Signum's finances. So it was really really cool. Um, anyway, so we're gonna uh, I'm gonna be giving that, and then we're gonna do some readings and discussions. So I'm gonna do a Tolkien reading and then talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then we're going to have a couple other readings uh, as well. So uh, I'll give you more details on that later on. Might surprise you with some of those. Um, but uh, anyway, so we're you know we're going to have a little uh, reading day where we celebrate some of the authors that we're uh, that we're that we're reading and talking about, uh, and uh, that you know so many of us love. So that's what we're going to be doing this coming Sunday. 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, there's a there's a link if you want to join us in GoToWebinar, as many of you do for this uh, session. So you can see the link for that on our events page. Go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you will be able to see uh, the page for our kickoff event and uh, the link uh, for that. Of course, we will also be uh, broadcasting on Twitch as well. So you can just show up there also, and that will be equally fine. Um, all right. So, oh, welcome, Michael. I see Michael Austin is joining us. He says he's been tuning in since the Silmarillion seminar, but this is the first time ever in what, Michael, like 10 years uh, that you've been able to attend live? Awesome. Thanks for joining me. Glad you could be here. Uh, uh, really glad to, uh, to have you listening for so long and to have you with us tonight. All right. So let us get back to the this wonderful progress that we're going to make through the notion club papers tonight and just to boost your confidence about how quickly we're going to be progressing through this story i wanted to circle back and spend some more time talking about the poem that we discussed last time because in retrospect i was really thinking that um i didn't talk enough about the structure of this poem. I mean, the metrical structure. We talked about it a bit. It kind of came up and we were looking at some things and some uh, regularities, but I was really struck by this again uh, when uh, when I was you know going through the reading for tonight. And I had uh, I'd almost forgotten, actually, that the later version of this poem, the version that was published about 10 years later, um, uh, that Christopher included it after the notes at the end of the at the end of the section. It was far enough removed that I had forgotten that it was in this volume. Uh, so I was uh, I, I want to do some comparing and contrasting. So let's reread this. So I'm, we're just going to do this one stanza though, in order to try to get a better handle on what Tolkien is doing here, because it's clearly more complicated than it sounds at first. You'll remember when we read this through last week, it sounded like the first. You know, uh, we, we've got these these pairs of lines, right? A four-beat line and a three-beat line, which is a fairly common pattern in Tolkien's poetry. He really likes that pattern. Um, what is essentially a seven-beat line, but it, it's not. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't write it like that. You know, three-beat, four-beat, three-beat, four-beat. Um, so, uh, so we, we were noticing that in the four-beat line, the rhythm is much more irregular, and then it's much more regular in the three-beat line. Of course, there's the end rhymes uh, in the three-beat lines, um, and we were noticing that that tendency to internal rhyme 
uh, in the lines above. Uh, and that's one of the things I want to focus on more and see if we can kind of uh, uh, make some observations about the, uh, the, the rhythm a little bit more as well. Um, so let's just read this stanza again. This is the stanza describing uh, the volcanic peak of the mental tarma that we see sticking up out of the, uh, out of the sea. Up, well, that, see, Brendan saw sticking up out of the sea, I should say. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer a shoreless mountain stood. Its sides were black from the sullen tide to the red lining of its hood. No cloak of cloud, no lowering smoke, no looming storm of thunder in the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the pall that we passed under. We turned away, and we left astern the rumbling and the gloom. Then the smoking cloud asunder broke, and we saw that tower of doom. On its ashen head was a crown of red, where fires flamed and fell. Tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its feet were deep as hell. Grounded in chasms the water drowned and buried long ago, it stands, I ween, in forgotten lands, where the kings of kings lie low. Okay, so the thing that we should certainly notice about the pattern, and, and this is one of the primary things I was noticing when I went back to this, um, we talked about the, the thing that jumped out at us, and I'm totally forgetting um, which of you it was that was pointing, that was drawing attention to this and was leading the discussion on this last time. Uh, if you're here this week, remind me. Um, but uh, the, the, the line that we focused on first was on its ashen head was a crown of red where fires flamed and fell. Um, as being very striking because it was the only one where the internal rhyme fell on the beat like that, right? On its ashen head was a crown of red. A very even tetrameter line with, uh, the, uh, with the, 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 the internal rhyme falling cleanly on the fourth syllable and the eighth syllable, and that there aren't any other lines that sound like that, right? Uh, we've got upreared from sea to cloud then sheer its sides were black from the sullen tide no cloak of cloud no lowering smoke in the world of men saw i ever unfurled and so that like you can read this through without even really noticing that without the internal minds really obtruding themselves on your notice in the way that on its ashen head was a crown of red nobody could read that line and not notice the internal rhyme right because the the rhythmic structure the way that the rhythm and the, the rhyme go together in that line make it very, very, very blatant, right? It's certainly highly noticeable, and we don't see that. Although, when you go through and look, you see, yes, that, in, that internal rhyming structure is there in every other line. So what's the pattern? What pattern do you see in the internal rhyme on the rest of the lines, not the ashen head and crown of red line? Well, what are the rhymes? Upreared? Sheer, sides, tide, cloak, smoke, world, unfurled, turned, astern, smoke, broke, head, red, as we saw, tall, hall, ground, drowned, stands, lands, right? So we see it in every single line. But of course, we can see as we look down through, it becomes more and more clear what the dominant pattern of those lines is, right? The reason that the on its ashen head was a crown of red line stands out um, is 
not principally because it's on the beat, right? It's principally because it's on a different beat, right? The overall pattern is that the rhymes frame those lines, right? They come at the beginning and at the end of the line, um, not in the middle and at the end, right? At the end of the first half line, as it were, and the end of the, of the full line at the end. Um, but wait, that's not quite enough, right? That happens once, tall and hall. Tall is a column in high heaven's hall is first syllable, last syllable, internal rhyme, right? Grounded and drowned there too. But with those two exceptions, I think those are the only two in which it's actually on syllable one and then again on syllable eight, right? Most of the time, what we see is not that. What we see is that the, the internal rhyme, the internal rhyming syllable, the first one falls usually on syllable two, sometimes syllable three, but if it's syllable three, it's kind of a cheating syllable three. There's like an extra syllable. So upreared, second syllable. It's sides, second syllable. No cloak, second syllable. In the world, see, there's an example, right? In the world of men saw, saw I ever unfurled. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled. World, men, ever, furled. Those are the four stressed syllables there. So it's iambic, but there's a few extra syllables there. In the world, this is extra, right? It's still on the first beat of the line. We turned, same thing, syllable two, first beat. Then the smoking cloud asunder broke, same thing. Then the smoking cloud asunder broke. First beat, third syllable, first beat. On its ashen head was a crown of red. Second beat, you see. It's four syllables in. It's on the second beat of the line. Tall as a column in high heaven's hall. Grounded in chasms, the water drowned. Again, both on very first syllable, but there it's because there's no, there's, those are like headless I am's, right? It stands, I ween, in forgotten lands. So he has the internal rhyme placed on the stressed syllables every time, right? And he has, so rather than framing the lines with the first syllable and the last syllable consistently, uh, because that would mess with the rhythm of the lines too much, he's, he does it usually on syllable two or sometimes three, right? The first iambic beat of the line and then the last iambic beat of the line. But that pattern is made a little bit less obvious by the fact that he does muck around with it so much, right? We get lots of extra words in there. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled is a great example, right? That line feels kind of a mess in that way, right? There are two extra syllables. There are ten syllables in that line. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and which is fine. You can do that, right? But it's, uh, it, it gives the whole thing a much more, um, a much more irregular feel. Well, let's contrast it with, so he comes back to this poem, right? So he writes this poem for the Notion Club papers, and then, uh, you know, to give uh, Frankly something to say, now, what, now, did he say, like, I want Frankly to read a poem here, uh, so I'm going to come, so, uh, hey, I think I'll do something about St. Brendan. I think probably not. Uh, you know, I think that it probably came in in a different way, uh, that this poem kind of came to him, and then he either, either he had written it earlier, and it came in here, and he adapted it for this, or it was, you know, like a, a poem about these things, you know, about seeing the mountain and the cloud over it, about seeing the tree, right? The, 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 the jeweled shores and the white tree. 
and about seeing the star, right, and the uh, and the straight road. It is quite possible, I can imagine, that a poem on that on those subjects uh, sort of came to him while he was writing this, right, as he was formulating this Notion Club paper stuff. Um, and so he decided to include it. It could have come earlier, right, and been adapted to this material. But in any case, he, and he never finishes the Notion Club papers, and he doesn't even ever seem to attempt to go back to it. Um, but he keeps the poem, right? And he polishes up the poem and publishes it uh, in a small journal, um, you know, a small magazine years later, 10 years later, in 1955. So here's the version of this same stanza, which you'll notice, the first thing you'll notice is much shorter, right? Uh, in 1955. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer a shoreless mountain stood. Its sides were black from the sullen tide up to its smoking hood, but its spire was lit with a living fire that ever rose and fell, tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its roots were deep as hell. Grounded in chasms the waters drowned and swallowed long ago, it stands, I guess, on the foundered land where the kings of kings lie low. Okay. Um... What are some different, apart from the fact that it's shorter, um, a lot of, the, most of the lines that are here are quite similar, right? If we look back and forth, I think we can hear some of the ways in which he's refining the sound of the lines, right? Look at those first four lines. Upreared from sea, the first version, upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer a shoreless mountain stood. Its sides were black from the sullen tide to the red lining of its hood. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer a shoreless mountain stood. Its sides were black from the sullen tide up to its smoking hood. Um, uh, you'll notice that the primary difference is in that fourth line, right? To the red lining of its hood, changed to up to its smoking hood. He, so he, he evens out the rhythm there, right? That becomes a perfect iambic trimeter line, as is not uncommon in those three beat lines in the poem. Those are those tend to be more regular all the way through, right? So there is a general smoothing out of things, which leads me to think that either the roughness of the original was not part of the intended effect, sometimes it can be part of the intended effect, uh, these variations from the rhythm. Um, either it was not part of the original intended effect and he uh, was you know sort of perfecting that, or he decided to change the effect that he was going for and decided that he wanted it smoother. Right. Um, one one way or the other, uh, it's that's a, a small and interesting change to the sound. Um, but notice one other thing. Uh, one other thing that I notice um, is that. Uh, okay, sorry. Just had something pop up on my screen over there. Um, one other thing that I noticed is that he makes the, the sounds a little bit more complex again. Look, look at the end. Tall as a column, the original version, tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its feet were deep as hell. Grounded in chasms, the water drowned and buried long ago. It stands, I ween, in forgotten lands where the kings of kings lie low. Tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its roots were deep as hell. 
Grounded in chasms, the waters drowned and swallowed long ago. It stands, I guess, on the foundered land where the kings of kings lie low. Um, one change that he's made here that I really, really like uh, is foundered, the addition of foundered land, right? There are two primary, and here it's word choices, right? He's changed buried to swallowed. That's not a rhythmic change, right? Uh, because those have the same rhythm. Swallowed long ago, from buried long ago. There, one could say, well, certainly that seems an improvement, as, of course, uh, water doesn't exactly bury things, right? So when you're describing something sunk beneath the water, uh, you could say it's been buried under the water, but uh, kind of cooler uh, to say that it was swallowed by the water, a little, a little bit more apt, uh, less of a, a sort of a mixed metaphor there, perhaps, um, is one... Uh, sort of improvement, um, but uh, but I, I like it better for other reasons than that. Again, thinking of the sounds of it. But look at that second word choice. I'll come back to that in a second. It stands, I ween, in forgotten lands, is the first time. It stands, I guess, on the foundered land, he says. Now, foundered uh, is, first of all, a sort of a lovely word, uh, kind of cooler than forgotten, but this is more than just cooler, right? Look at what he ha has done here. The internal rhyme of this second-to-last four-beat line. Grounded in chasms, the waters drowned. Grounded, drowned is the internal rhyme, and he picks up on that sound again the last time. It stands, I guess, on the foundered land. Uh, when um, uh, when the 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 column, right, the mountain, the volcano, is grounded in chasms that have been drowned, right? What do you have, right? That it's that's that has happened because it is a uh, the land is the land is foundered. Uh, so he makes the 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 connections in that last quatrain much richer, right? Much richer than just the two separate. Uh, the two separate internal rhymes, and then the end rhymes on the three-beat lines, a go, low, right? But more, by changing buried to swallowed, he not only improves the metaphorical structure, but he also echoes the sounds. And here, I'm thinking of, of bo bo so swallowed, first of all, I like how the, how the, 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 the W, go. first of all, swallowed echoes the, ago, it contains the open O sound that is going to be rhymed on in those lines, a go and low. Right, um, but also the the two W's in swallow also uh, help to sort of echo the drowned, uh, grounded in chasms. The waters drowned and swallowed. So you've got waters drowned and swallowed. Right, so you've got a, a lot of W's going on there. But wait, it also links it down to the next one with the S's. Right, swallowed stands guess, which of course guess he's changed from I ween to I guess. Right, um, I. Wonder. I mean, on the one hand, it's it makes it more modern, right? A, a little bit less archaic. Um, ween being a challenging word uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, again, just like not much in use uh, in the modern era. Um, but but again, even better uh, is the improvement to the sound structure uh, because we get those repeated sibilants: swallowed, stands, guess, on the foundered land where the kings of kings lie low. Um, one effect of that also, by the way, I don't know if this is an intended effect, but uh, there's 
kings of kings is kind of a risky phrase in some ways, right? Um, and I say risky because king of kings is a very prominent biblical phrase, right? That is one of the words, that is one of the biblical names for Jesus, right? So king of kings, uh, king of kings and lord of lords, like for God and for Jesus, like that's a big deal, right? So you don't want to make a mistake with that, right? Or you don't want people making a mistake. As, as, as they, you could easily make, easily make a mistake as you read past that, right? With a king of kings lie low. It's like, wait, wait, what? And then you kind of stumble over it. Um, one effect for me of having all of those sibilants in the two lines before is that it really, it, it draws you to the S's, right? It stands swallowed long ago. It stands, I guess, on the foundered land where the kings of kings lie low. We get both of those uh, sibilants there because we are uh, sort of prepped for, for the sibilants by all the sibilants that came before. And of course, both of them pick up uh, on those sibilants as well. So we get um, uh, we get a bunch of those. I just... It's, the revisions that I'm pointing to here, these are not major things, right? Normally when I'm looking at like how Tolkien changed something between one draft and a later draft, I'm primarily interested in, uh, you know, how, how his ideas are developing and how we're seeing the story grow. Here, what I'm really wanting to indulge myself in doing is looking at some of the really small changes that he made, which have a really interesting effect on the poem, right? But they're very small stylistic changes. I've often talked about or just sort of said how much Tolkien loves the sound of words, right? And how much, how interested his poetry in particular is in the sound of words, right? And in, in, in playing on the sound of words. Uh, and I think that by looking at some of these changes, you can, it really draws attention uh, to some of those things in some really interesting ways. Those last four lines especially uh, become a much more dense and complex tapestry of sounds um, than, uh, than the original uh, four syllables. The basic structure was there, right? Which And the basic structure is already sort of fairly complicated, right? With the, uh, the, 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 the internal rhymes on the long lines and the, and the other rhymes on the other lines and the rhythmic variations and stuff. It's already pretty complicated. Um, but he's made it, well, not necessarily more complicated, uh, that merely makes it sound like there's a, like a really intricate structure, but it's not just about the structure, right? It's about the, it's about the texture, if you see what I mean, uh, of the, the sounds and the way that he, the way that he does that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now it's true, Bruce, that here in the revised version, Tolkien is publishing it independently without the frame story, uh, of being a work in progress read to friends, right? So we can see him. That's a, one reason, of course, to polish it up. It's also, of course, puts the whole thing in a... I mean, we have to remember, we have to imagine people reading this in this little magazine, right, who know nothing about anything, right? Um, who are not looking at this and being like, is this Tenequitil or the Mental Terma, right? That's just not the question that anyone who's reading this poem uh, are going to be asking. Um so, uh, yeah, anyway, um, but looking at the, uh, um, yeah, good. So Bruce, you were thinking, uh, that maybe it's better for the original to sound sort of rougher, uh, because it was meant to be a work in progress read to the notion club. That's a really interesting idea. Um, 
would he have wanted to keep it rougher? Um, to just, again, to recreate that sound, like this is, this is the first draft of the poem. That's an interesting suggestion. Um, it is true that that is how it's framed in the story. So yeah, now that is interesting. Um, the, in this stanza, the only, uh, the only internal rhyme that we get, um, so first of all, you, you'll notice one of the things that's pretty striking here, he's cut the one that we really liked. <laughs> right he's cut on its ashen head was a crown of red where fires flamed and fell between the uh the the really um uh sort of powerful rhythm of that first line and the really cool f alliteration on the second line that was this that, that was a feature of the original right um but he ditches it in the second one which is intriguing um but anyway having lost that one every sing now every single um, so having lost, though, that one little cool uh, 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 set of lines, he's made the entire thing more regular. Now, all of the, 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 the rhymes are on the first beat. Uh, the internal rhymes are on the first beat and the last beat. It's more regular. And I certainly think that to the ear, the internal rhyme, like the, the, the rhyme structure of the overall stanza is much plainer, I think, to the ear, uh, in part because of that uh, uh, because of that that change in some ways uh, on its ashen head uh, 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 the uh, sorry, I'm, I'm screwing up the line on its ashen head was a crown of red almost sort of spoils the rest of the lines right it makes it harder to hear in the rest of the lines because we heard it in that and we're listening for the same thing and we're not hearing it in other lines right um, here I think it's much more present uh, to the ear there's also only one example where the internal rhyme is on the third syllable instead of the first or second, right? And that's, but its spire was lit with a living fire. Um, and there you'll notice, but its spire was lit with a living fire. Um, we get another, listen to these two lines. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the pall that we passed under. That's one of the ones, again, where we get the extra syllable at the beginning and we get extra syllables in the middle and it makes the whole thing just sound kind of clunky. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the pall that we passed under, right? We get a similar structure here where we get the extra syllable at the beginning and we get an extra syllable later in the line. But instead of clunky, you'll notice it doesn't sound clunky at all, right? but its spire was lit with a living fire. Hear the difference, right? That is variation from the meter that is much more under control, but its spire with a living, right? With a is the extra syllable there. He could have skipped it, right? You don't have to have the a uh there. He could have just said, but its spire was lit with living fire. In fact, you know, <clears throat> theoretically, you could have skipped the but. Now, the but matters, right? I mean, it, it, it contributes to the meaning. But still, if we cut it out, you could just say its spire was lit with living fire. And then you've got a perfect, perfect iambic line, right? But he doesn't do that. Whereas, again, what words do you cut out of this one? In the world of men saw I ever unfurled. 
you can't this that, that line is just kind of overflowing right the thought that is behind that line just is not matching it's not fitting the flow of that of that poem right in the new one it is but its spire was lit with a living fire um the rhythm it's 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 a it's a different rhythm right its sides were black from the sullen tide similar right upreared from sea to cloud then sheer that one is perfectly smooth right upreared from sea to cloud then sheer but its spire was lit with a living fire tall as a column in high heaven's hall that one is a uh, really interesting one um uh and that one is the same as the uh, uh as the original he clearly still liked that line its roots were deep as hell anyhow um i uh, um yeah and bruce you're right saw i ever unfurled sounds clunky in like every way right yeah not just it's in 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 rhythm and <laughs> denotation right i mean yeah that's a that's a that's a that's a tough phrase that does just does not flow right um yeah um Stephen, I, Stephen uh, is asking me about, he, he's just noticing, he's just been reading uh, C.S. Uh, Lewis's unpublished The Dark Tower uh, story uh, and uh, saying he can't help but notice some similarities with an Ocean Club paper, certainly in, in theme and concept, Stephen, uh, with the, the uh, seeing the past and everything, there's, there's, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, I don't remember the dates, Stephen. Somebody, somebody look that up. If anyone knows that or can find that, when was the Dark Tower written? Uh, uh, if we know, I'm not even sure we know for sure. Um, if uh, if we don't know for sure, if that's I can't even remember that. Um, uh, but um, I can I can try to I can try to find out about that. Um, anyhow, uh, thank you for indulging my desire to uh, to look at some of these things. I hope. Uh, I won't. Uh, I won't go on any longer. And I'm, I'm only doing these two stanzas, right? I just wanted to kind of touch on it uh, and sort of show how this works. It's really neat to be able to put things side by side like this and look at some of these really small tweaks. Um, it really, I for me anyway, it really draws attention to uh, the ways in which Tolkien is playing with language, uh, and I find it a lot of fun. So thank you for indulging me. All right. Back to the story. So we were after Frankly reads his poem, uh, which is, of course, not at all irrelevant uh, to the larger discussion of Atlantis and, and uh, Numenor. Uh, we then get back to the account of uh, Loudham and Jeremy's trip when they left in the middle of the storm. I everyone thought they might have died in the storm, but everyone, they left in the middle of the storm, not uh, like in their right minds, believing themselves to be Numenorians, right? They left the they left the party and uh, went out into the wild, and we haven't seen them in several months. And they come back, and this is, and they're telling us what they did. So this is while they were in Ireland. So they sail over to Ireland uh, and are asking people about the storm. We heard we both heard many tales of the huge waves high as hills coming in on the black night, and curiously enough. Many of the tale-tellers agreed that the greatest waves were like phantoms, or only half real, like shadows of mountains of dark, black, wicked water. Some rolled far inland, and yet did little damage before, well, disappearing, melting away. 
We were told of one that had rolled clean over the Aran Isles and passed up Galway Bay, and so on like a cloud, drowning the land in a ghostly flood like rippling mist, almost as far as Clonfair. And we came across one old man, a queer old fellow whose English was hardly intelligible, on the road not far from, uh, from Logre. Sorry, I'm terrible at pronouncing Irish names. He was wild and ragged, but tall and rather impressive. He kept pointing westward and saying, as far as we could gather, it was out of the sea they came, as they came in the days before the days. He said that he had seen a tall black ship high on the crest of the great wave, with its masts down and the rags of black and yellow sails flapping on the deck, and great tall men standing on the high poop and wailing like the ghosts they were, and they were born far inland and came, well, not a soul knows where they came. Okay. Um, so, uh, tall ships and tall kings. Yeah, exactly. We're, there aren't three times three of them, right? But we definitely, you know, tall ships, check. Tall kings, check. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in this eruption into the primary world of the story of Numenor, right, uh, which erupts as a great storm itself, breaking or rather exploding in bursts across the British landscape here. Um, the rising of the sea, which of course there, there was legitimately, right, the huge storm, but there were also these phantom waves. So it's not just that there was this manifestation in the primary world, right? That the energy, you know, the energy of this myth being sort of un being unleashed um, as remember, Raymer cautioned that that can have explosive effects even in the primary world. Its effect was not just to release a kind of sympathetic that is sympathetic to the myth, right? Or like resonant with the myth storm uh, in the British Isles, but also to have these visions. And I don't know about you, but um, so these people are talking like this guy that they talk to, right? Uh, speaks as if what he's seeing are ghosts, right? As if he's seeing ghosts, wailing like the ghosts they were, we're told, right? So they see a ghost wave, which is carrying on its uh, top a ghost ship with tall ghosts standing on it and wailing, right? Except we know more than this, right? Uh, perhaps, or maybe we should, thinking about Raymer's whole discussion and what we've learned from Loudon before. Um, it seems that what they were seeing here is not a ghost, right? These are not ghosts in the sort of classic or traditional sense. They were seeing the past, right? Again, the, the myth, the Atlantis myth was... Well, I was about to say leaking through, but leaking, of course, is not at all the verb to fit the impact that the myth has when it uh, comes into contact with modern or indeed future England, right? Future to them, past to us, 1987. Um, but, um, but anyway, okay, so it... It's come into contact with a contemporary world. And the primary effect of that is the storm that appears, right? And, but this seems to be obviously not unrelated, but a separate effect, right? It's more than just causing the storm. 
it's causing what seem to be visions, but not, but visions of true things, right? Um, the implication is perhaps that what they're seeing is something that actually happened, like they are seeing history happening, right? They're like this guy with the almost unintelligible English whom they talked to, uh, this Irish guy, um, saw he time traveled in Raymer's sense, right? That he 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 saw this happening. Think about Raymer's discussions about how like he had to like train himself to become you know gain a sort of sympathetic resonance with stuff like the meteor. Remember he was studying, and through that he could sort of begin to to feel what it felt, right? To remember what it remembered and things like that. And that was the mechanism for Raymer's time travel, right? Well, it seems very likely, especially based on the stories that we get later, the stories of Alfwina, I mean, uh, that Ireland, the land, right? Not the people, but the, 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 the countryside of Ireland remembers that other great storm, right? It remembers the Black Wave, that came out of the sea bearing the ship upon its crest, right? Um, so he's not trained himself like Raymer, though he is probably in touch with the land to some extent, right? He probably has indeed attuned himself to this land on which no doubt he has lived all of his life and probably his forefathers before him for quite some time, right? Um, but when this contact is made, right, the contact between this ancient time, this, you know, the, 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 the time, which is the, you know, the sort of the origin of this Atlantis myth and the modern time, when that bursting together, when that, uh, that explosive contact has been made, uh, between the past and the present in that moment, he sees it, right? He is, I think, doing a kind of, um, a kind of time travel there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's how I understand this in the context of what we've seen before. And again, I come back to, you know, the sort of breakthrough in my own understanding of the Numenor myth that I've referred to several times over the last couple of classes. Um, again, this image is so striking. Um, I have to admit that I had always imagined the Numenorians arriving in Middle-earth as, I don't know, cheerful? <laughs> That's really simple, but like, like an escape, right? Like, they, like I'd always sort of imagined they'd probably be really happy to see the land, right? Um, I never really imagined Elendil landing uh, on Middle-earth after, you know, born on the wings of storm, landing in Middle-earth, and, uh, you know, I always imagined him being like, wow, oh, you know, the Valar have brought us safe, you know, uh, to they, we, they have preserved us, right? I never imagined them standing on the poop deck of their ship being like, ah, <laughs> right, as this wave is bringing them and beaching their ship, like, way inland, right? Um, that is just never how <laughs> I imagined uh, the Numenor myth uh, to be going, yeah, something sort of triumphant about it, Bruce. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, good. Um, yes. Now, it's certainly true, Carrie. They were refugees of a beautiful place landing in wild emptiness. And in that way, I would think that, you know, it would be somber, right? Uh, uh, sort of sobering. But, but Carrie, I always imagine that is their second reaction, <laughs> right? Like the first reaction, like, okay, thanks for sparing us. Glad we're alive. That was great, right? That, I mean, you know in much more suitably epic terms than that. But that's kind of always the response that I'd imagined. Um, and, uh, but, and, but this is beyond just like, well, this is kind of a come down, right? This is uh, very, um, um, uh, very, very striking, right? The idea that this wave is bearing them. And again, the, the singular wave, right? Um, there was the fluted wave Raymer's recurring dream, which we know also to be Tolkien's recurring dream, which will eventually become Faramir's recurring dream, right? The wave which sweeps across Numenor. Um, and, you know, th with that image, which of course I knew first is Faramir's dream, um, with that image of the wave swallowing up the land, it's a very striking image, right? And especially as a, a kind of crystallization of the destruction of Numenor, right? Um, the wave comes. Uh, the wave comes across the land, uh, and uh, you know. So the land sinks and stuff, and the world becomes round. Lots of big, huge, you know, tectonic-sized things are happening here, um, tectonic and beyond. But um, uh, but that that image of the wave coming across the land is is a great little like encapsulation of the drowning of Numenor, right? That's how I'd always. That's how I always how how I had always thought of it. But the idea that that wave is in a sense sort of primarily the wave that is it's sweeping across Numenor on its way to pick up the exiles and carry them along right um they are being they are being born uh on the wave of wrath right um the wave of wrath which is itself you know pushing and uh 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 removing them from Numenor and throwing them onto, uh, you know, Carrie, as you say, uh, this wild, empty, desolate place. Um, there's really n less of, you know, thankful deliverance in that uh, than ever I thought. And again, this image just really sort of solidifies it. Even, um, even the ideas of, of, uh, of, Yeah, I mean, I talk about the the the, the idea of, of of weeping, but um, notice the wickedness of the wave, right? Um, this one wave is described as a wicked wave, by which you know, so uh, dark uh, mountains of tall, black, wicked water, right? And wicked really stands out to me there, not only because I live in New Hampshire, but also because um, it's, uh, it's, everything else is just a description of what they saw, right? Uh, shadows of mountains of dark, black, wicked water, right? There's that one word which ascribes, like, 
an alignment, right? A motivation uh, to the water, which speaks of their sense of the malice behind the waves, right? And I suspect what they're actually perceiving is wrath, right? The anger. Um, there is, in a sense, malice behind it. It is not a wave. That is, uh, this is not a wave that 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 is that is uh, bringing anybody good. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. I mean, Yana, it's true. I mean, it is their self. See, that's how I always looked at it, Yana. Like it's pushing them away from the Valar and the land of gift, but it's their salvation, right? Yeah, except nowhere in this story is that emphasized. Nowhere are they even remembering that. Nowhere are they even thinking of it like that, right? It's almost, in, in fact, the sense that you almost get is that the very preservation from destruction is almost itself like a punishment. You know what I mean? Like, they would have preferred to die uh, in the destruction of Numenor than live uh, and survive and be exiled. Um, I don't want to lean on that too heavily, but again, it's, I can't think of a single note. I, I mean, one of Christopher's copious end notes. I mean, I don't remember a single overtone, a single reference, a single word uh, in any of the descriptions of the experience of the Numenorians that we get from, from Loudham and Jeremy, from any of the other references, from the Anglo-Saxon poems, from anything else. I don't remember one single time that gratitude for salvation has been hit upon, right? That's just, I mean, we can, it's true, right? I mean, you can say that and it's true and it's, it's, but you know, like it works from a narrative standpoint, um, but it is almost entirely alien to the flavor of the entire story as we're given it here. Um, yeah. Um, is it similar to the wind that blows away Saruman's spirit? Well, much more violent than that. Uh, and of course, Stephen, the, the primary difference, if this doesn't seem like too silly a difference to point out, but I don't think it is. Um, the wind that blew away Saruman's spirit affected only Saruman's spirit, right? Um, that is to say, it's not even, I don't even think there was a wind. Like, Saruman's spirit blew away as if a wind blew it away, right? But it's not like a sudden gale picks up and all of their cloaks billow and the dust flies and, you know, their hair gets ruffled up uh, and Saruman's spirit is blown away, right? They see Saruman's spirit blown away as if by a wind, right? But it's it, it doesn't affect anybody. Whereas, to the contrary, this wave, right, has not only drowned all of Numenor, Based on this account, I don't think it did Ireland any favors either when it landed, right? I mean, I can only imagine that the uh, the actual event which is being perceived here by the Irish, right, during this storm, the original event must have been really bad. It's no wonder the water looked wicked, right? Um so, yeah, so in that way, so Stephen, if you see what I mean, um, it's not just that one is was clearly a physical wave as well as a, 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 a spiritual wave, but um, so much more wholesale, right? Taking no prisoners anywhere. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, and I agree, Carrie. Uh, I am sure Ireland would have looked um, very dark uh, and desolate to the Numenorean exiles when they landed far inland on top of a mountain, right, where, where, where they were deposited. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep going. I felt tired. Oh, sorry. So this is, um, uh, jumping forward, this is the dream that uh, uh, Laudum has, right, that he relates. So this is his experience within his dream, his experience, or his vision, right, uh, his experience as an Anglo-Saxon shop, right? Um, so he is experiencing the memories of this Anglo-Saxon dude. I felt tired, not only because Treowina and I had had a long spell of Coast Guard duty and had had little sleep since the raid on Watchet, but I was tired of this woeful and disheveled world, slipping slowly back into decay, as it seemed to me, with its petty but cruel wars and all the ruin of the good and fair things that had been in my grandsire's days. The hangings on the wall behind the dais were faded and worn, and on the table there were but few vessels or candlesticks of gold and silver smithcraft that had survived the pillage of the heathen. The, 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 meaning the Saxons, of course, who were invading. The sound of the wind disturbed me and brought back to me old longings that I, had, that I thought I had buried. I found myself thinking of my father, old Eadwine, Oswine's son, and the strange tales that he told me when I was a small lad, and he a grizzled seaman of more than fifty winters, tales of the west coasts and far islands, and of the deep sea, and of a land there was far away, where there was peace and fruitfulness among a fair folk that did not wither. Okay. Um, so... What do, what do we notice is the, 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 the primary elements. The dominant element of that first paragraph is his sense of loss, right? The sense of decline. He knows. He doesn't have to see things from a Numenorean perspective. Carrie, he doesn't have to have that experience that you were describing of the Numenoreans arriving on Middle-earth and recognizing not only have they lost their homes, um, but they have been they have been diminished. They have been put into a lesser land, right? They have been made lesser and they are going to, and, and the, there's no way they're going to be able, they're not going to build a, a, you know, a new Numenor better and stronger right here on this, here in Ireland, right? That's not going to happen. Um, and of course we've seen the dwindling of the myth, right? The reduction from the first generation memories of Numenor and the laments of those who recall uh, uh, you know, the foundered land across the sea down to that one little line, right, that keeps recurring, that it seems unlikely that anybody who repeated it really fully understood, right, about a straight road, uh, there being a straight road, but all paths now being crooked. Um, yeah, so um, this we see... But again, you don't have to have that big view of the situation to be painfully aware of the fact that things are in a downward spire in Middle-earth, right? That is Alfwina's primary recognition here, right? Even in his own lifetime, things have gone downhill, and certainly from his grandsire's days, things have gone downhill, right? They, they, the awareness 
that there used to be greater things about their culture and that their culture is getting lesser and lesser and smaller and smaller and um, all the ruin of the good and fair things that had been, right? Um, just petty and cruel wars. There's nothing left. So that's one element that we see in Alfwina's story. The other is the sea longing, right? And we can see the repetitions, right? We have Alfwina, son of, of Eadwina, right? Son of Oswina. Um, we have the, uh, the, the, the stories of the seafarers that head to the west, far islands, the deep sea, and one mythic memory. A land there was far away where there was peace and fruitfulness among a fair folk that did not wither. Now here's the interesting thing. That is not a memory of Numenor, I think. That seems to be a memory. It sounds like it might be a memory of Numenor, right? That has been passed down and almost lost and, and, and sort of only very dimly recalled now, but um, instead I think it's Elvenholm. Yes, I think it's St. Brendan's Island, Tomas, exactly. Um, not only because of the use of the phrase fair folk, but the, the, the lack of withering. Now you can say people live so much longer in Numenor, you can imagine how that might have come down to make them immortal, you know, in the memories of later men. Um, but I don't think so. I think it's Elvenholm that they're remembering. So that what we're seeing here is not just the fact that we're lamenting for Numenor and we're remembering Numenor, the memory of that which is beyond Numenor, right? The memory of the true West, the memory of Toleresia and of Valinor beyond is also something that's being handed down to, you know, the Anglo-Saxons, right? That is being handed down to the ancient Britons, um, and uh, will be, of course, transmitted uh, in some of those snatches that we uh, um, that we see later on, or will no that we earlier saw from a later historical period. Okay, let's keep going. I had been in 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 Ireland more than once, and wherever I went, I sought tales of the great sea and what lay out upon it or beyond if haply it had any further shore. Folk had not much to tell for certain, but there was talk of one Malduin, who had sailed to new lands, and of the holy Brendan, and others. And some there were who said that there had been a land of men away west in long days of yore, but that it had been cast down, and those that had that escaped had come to Iru, so they called Ireland, in their ships, and their descendants lived on there, and in other lands about the shores of Garsedge that is the great sea. But they dwindled and forgot, and naught now was left of them but a wild strain in the blood of men of the west. And you will know those that have it by the sea longing that is on them, they said, and it is many that it draws out west to their death, or to never come back among living men. Or to come never back among living men. Okay, so we do have you'll notice here a distinct memory. This is the memory of Numenor, right? So that there was a land in the West and there were men who came from that land. That land was drowned, right? Um, and But some people, it was cast down specifically, right? 
and there were those that had escaped and come to Ireland. And what's their, what's their um, legacy, right? How can you tell one of those who has the blood of the men of the West in his veins? The sea longing, right? Um, but again, thinking back to what we saw about Alfwina's own sea longing, which is, of course, suggestive under the circumstances, uh, is that his longing is not for Numenor. It's for the West. It's for Elvenholm, right? To discover that land that his grandsire spoke of, right? So the longing for Numenor has faded, and it's not to recover the lost glory of their ancestors or to return to that which, you know, uh, their ancestors had or anything like that, right? It's no return to that or rediscovery of that or anything like that. That's not what lies on them, right? In the later versions, I mean, later after the first generations of the Numenorians and stuff, right? In the later generations, what we get, what we see is what has been transferred is the longing for the West, right? That, that Numenor is... That is the seed that the Numenorians have transmitted. A vague memory that Numenor did exist, but again, you'll notice how, I don't know, comparatively unimportant that seems to be, right? Notice nobody attaches any attention to that land itself, right? There's nothing special about them, like the men of the West, those who have the blood of the men of the West is not, you know, they're not taller, stronger, more handsome, right? Uh, better in any way, mystical in any sense, right? There's there's no sense that like they were the kings among men, the lordly men, right? And those who are the, their descendants, they're not like, oh, I don't know, something else we've seen lots of times in Tolkien, like uh, a, a, a Noldor living among, uh, a, a, you know, green elves, or they're not like, um, you know, phallohides among stores or something like that. That is not associated with the new, which we might have expected, right? We might have expected them to say something like, oh, you can always tell somebody who's descended from those men of the West because he's a foot and a half taller than everybody else, right? There's nothing like that, right? Um, the natural leaders and kings among men. Um, again, that kind of thing we see in Tolkien stories in many other places, like with the Phalahides among the hobbits, right? As I said, but, um, but that's not what we get. Here, the blood of Numenor is only the transmitter of the love for the West. So notice how these two things are coming together, right? The desire to go West, the, 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 the recollection of Elvenholm, and um, the experience of the Numenorean exile, and how the longing for Numenor and the lament of the loss of Numenor and of its fall is, our, is being in the story here transmuted into... Uh, merely the desire for that which was always beyond Numenor, right? Um, yeah. Oh, so Yama, the the um, the spelling of I of uh, Iru and Irland, um That's because the 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 names are being adapted from the from the Anglo-Saxon here. Um, it's a, it's it, those aren't modern English forms there or Gaelic forms. Uh, those are, I think it's Gaelic-ish names being 
translated into ang like being done by Anglo-Saxons, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, sort of transliterated, kind of. I mean, yeah, some kind of combination. Um, yeah. All right. Keep going. Oop. Yep. Uh, okay. So then we have, they come before the Thane, right? And Treowina sings a song. And he sings a song of King Sheev, uh, the story of King Sheev. Now, Tolkien does not give this story in verse. He doesn't give it in a literative verse as Treowina uh, would have sung it. Instead, he gives a prose synopsis of it. This is important and interesting because he's already written an alliterative version of this, right? And first of all, even if we didn't know that, we would, I, I anyway, would be a little bit surprised because I certainly wouldn't think that he would be, uh, that, you know, the Tolkien that we know and love would not be uh, shy about putting his hand to writing an alliterative version of this in verse, right? Uh, it seems like just the kind of thing that he would do. And in fact, we know that he did do it. You can find that in The Lost Road, Volume 5, I think, I'm pretty sure, um, of, um, of the history of Middle-earth. And we've talked about that. We talked about the, the verse version. Now, in his notes, Christopher Tolkien explains that he says in The Lost Road, Volume that this prose version he thought was written at the same time that Tolkien wrote for some reason, wrote a poetic version, and then he wrote a prose synopsis of the same thing. And he says here that he now thinks he was wrong when he said that, right? And that the prose version was written during this time. It was written for the Notion Club papers specifically. So Tolkien had the po We know, again, you know, did he have the poem of St. Brendan sitting around and he decided to integrate it? Maybe, 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 maybe not. We don't really know that. But we know for a fact that he had King Sheev sitting around, right, in verse. But he decides not to incorporate that. He decides uh, that he's going to do a prose synopsis of it. Is it because, um, why is that? I have no idea, right? Um, I, we can imagine some reasons. Is it because he's just had a long poem, uh, the St. Brendan poem put in there not too long ago, and doesn't want, um, uh, doesn't want, to, to overload, because, you know, Tolkien is super cautious about overloading, overloading his readers with poetry, right? Um, that's, that's one possibility we can't rule out. That doesn't seem hugely plausible, but maybe. Um, could it be that he wanted to place emphasis on the, wanted to make sure people weren't missing the story, missing the narrative, really emphasizing the narrative elements? So let's look at these narrative elements and see what we notice here. In days of yore, out of deep ocean, to the Longobards, in the land dwelling that of old they held in the isles of the north, a ship came sailing, shining timbered, without oar of mast, eastward floating. Notice that the, this is technically, of course, in prose, but notice that the flow and the rhythm of it is very like alliterative verse, and there is a not insignificant quantity of alliteration sprinkled through. Unsurprising, because again, we know he is working straight from uh, an alliterative poem here already written and that he's very likely to be actively working to keep the feeling of that original. So we might be reading it in prose, but he would like to give us at least a, a touch of the experience of actually hearing it. Uh, another thing occurs to me here too. Um, 
Is he also thinking about being true to the frame? Remember what Raymer said, right? Raymer said that when you have a vision like this, um, you like if someone is speaking in Anglo-Saxon, you don't hear the Anglo-Saxon, right? You hear it translated, and your your mind translates it, right? Is that why we get King Sheev in prose here? Because it was translated into prose in uh, in Loudon's mind, he couldn't have recalled the actual uh, poetic meter, right? Because he's just what he gets is the sense of the narrative, right? But it does at least still retain the uh, the flavor, right, of the of uh, of the original. Anyway, let me start again. In <laughs> without interrupting myself. In days of yore, out of deep ocean to the Longobards, in the land dwelling that of old they held in the isles of the north, a ship came sailing, shining timbered, without oar of mast, oar or mast, eastward floating. The sun behind it, sinking westward with flame, kindled the fallow water. Wind was wakened. Over the world's margin, clouds gray helmed climbed slowly up, wings unfolding wide and looming, as mighty eagles moving onward to eastern earth, omens bearing. Men there marveled, in the mist standing of the dark islands in the deeps of time, laughter they knew not, light nor wisdom, shadow was upon them, and sheer mountains stalked behind them, stern and lifeless, evil haunted. The east was dark. So, what do we think of this story so far? I mean, like, what is the... What is the frame of this story? Again, coming from what we know and from what we've seen, what should we be thinking? What should we be uh, be be recognizing? Um, I think it must be without or or mast. I think it's it's that meaning like it has no mechanism of propulsion, right? There is no mast to hold sails. There are no oars to row the boat. Yeah. So Tomas, it sure sounds like Sheaf must be a survivor from Numenor, right? Um, so here we've got this mysterious boat, which is being born on the wind, right? And it's the clouds more than anything else. Um, so it sounds kind of like, well, Tomas has to be a little bit more cautious. This, there are similarities between the arrival of this and the arrival of the Numenorean refugees, right? Uh, in Ireland. Uh, first, this is not Ireland. We can't help but notice, right? Uh, this is in the uh, the Isles of the North where the Longobards dwelt. But secondly, we do have that cloud. Over the world's margin, clouds, gray helmet climbed slowly up. What were the clouds like? Wings unfolding wide and looming as mighty eagles moving onward to eastern earth. Omens bearing. Okay. That we've seen several times. The clouds that open wings, like the eagles of the lords of the west coming upon us, right? Like that's, okay, that's super Numenorean right there, right? Um, the eagles of the wrath of the lords of the west, which are escorting this ship uh, into the east from the west, right? Uh, bearing it before it with no sails and no oars, right? That sounds very familiar, but what are the differences? Yes, Jennifer, good. No wicked waves, fortunately for the Longobards. Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't have dark sh mountains of water, right? Of wicked, black, wicked water. Um, it's just floating eastward. 
The sun is sinking westward and kindling the fallow water with flame. Right? Wind was wakened, we're told, and the clouds come up, right? The eagle clouds come up, but we're not told anything about an actual storm, right? So this would lead us to think one of two things, right? Either A, this is not the Numenorians, though it sounds a lot like them, or B, did I say one before? Or two, uh, I often do that. Number one and number B. Um, number two, uh, the other option is that this is a garbled version of the myth, right? Um, some of the details of the true history are recalled in this myth, but others have been lost. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. Men there marveled in the mist standing of the dark islands in the deeps of time. And then we get this aside then. What were things like for the Longobards at this point? Not very good. They didn't know laughter or light or wisdom. That's not a good situation. Shadow was upon them, and sheer mountains stalked behind them, stern and lifeless, evil haunted. The east was dark, and the lot of, of the Langobards was unhappy. Okay, so the Langobards not having a good time of it, and then, ta-da, the ship arrives from the west. The ship came shining to the shore driven and strode upon the strand till its stern rested on sand and shingle. The sun went down. The clouds overcame the cold heavens. In fear and wonder to the fallow waters, sad-hearted men swiftly hastened to the broken beaches, the boat seeking, gleaming timbered in the gray twilight. They looked within, and there laid sleeping a boy they saw breathing softly. His face was fair, his form lovely, his limbs were white, his locks raven golden, his locks raven golden braided. Gilt and carven with wondrous work was the wood about him, in golden vessel gleaming water stood beside him, strung with silver a harp of gold beneath his hand rested, his sleeping head was softly pillowed on a sheaf of corn, shimmering palely as the fallow gold doth from far countries west of Angle. Wonder filled them. Okay. The ship does come reasonably far inland, right? Its stern is resting on sand and shingle. Uh, so it, you know, it doesn't just like bump up gently against the beach, right? And the, the prow of it just kind of hit up on the sand. No, the whole stern is resting, you know, so it comes pretty far in. Right, until its stern is resting on sand and shingle, but it's not like it's being deposited three miles inland either, right? Born up on, a, on any wicked waves. Um, they seek, notice the immediate contrast of light, right? Um, we're told about the darkness and the shadows of this land, right? And the sad-hearted men swiftly hasten down to the broken beaches. And what, why? Because they're seeking the gleaming timbered, uh, the boat seeking gleaming tinder, gleaming timbered in the gray twilight, right? Um, the, boat is the, the boat is full of light, right? It's gleaming in the gloaming um, right away. And what do we see? Oh, the gold, right? The wonder, gilt and carven with wondrous work was the wood about him, right? So much gold. Uh, so his, he's got black hair, right? His locks raven 
are golden braided. So I believe that means that strands of gold are woven in with his hair, right, in his braids. So it's he's got he's got gold within his black braids because hair is black, but he's got gold worked in there. Um, he's uh, he's got a golden harp with silver strings beneath his hand. He's got his head pillowed on a sheaf of corn, shimmering palely. Which is, as Kit says, of course, this is not uh, corn like corn on the cob. This is a this is a sheaf of wheat that his head is lying on. Corn being a very generic English word, which just means grain or kernel, right? Um, like any piece of grain is called uh, corn. Um, yeah, so exactly. Yeah, corn does not equal maize. Yeah, not 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 at all. Not at all. Um, okay, so he's got a golden wheat beneath his head, which shimmers palely, right? The gold in the you know in the twilight, presumably, as the fallow gold doth from far countries west of Angol. Um, his uh, uh, we've got um, the the water, the gleaming water, right? So we've got all this gold and silver imagery. It is certainly something totally alien to this dark and unhappy land that he has landed on, right? So, okay. So what's our um, what's our our current theories now? Numenorean, you think? Probably. Land of plenty, right? Land of peace, hence the harp and not a weapon, right? Um, of obvious wealth, right? Gold and silver absolutely everywhere, woven into his hair, for crying out loud. Um, okay. But it's a kid. This is a boy by himself. It's like the other Numenorean exile that didn't get mentioned. Is that what this is? <laughs> young Boromir? <laughs> no, Arthur. It's not young Boromir. Well, let's, um, let's keep going. Grief overcame them. So they can't find him, right? They, they go back in the morning. He's just they, they take him in sleeping, right? And then they wake up and he's gone. Um, despite the fact that they, they closed the doors, right? To, to give him peace while he slept. And then they wake up and then in the morning they go in to look for him and he's not there, right? Grief overcame them. In sorrow they sought him till the sun rising over the hills of heaven to the homes of men light came bearing. They looked upward and high upon a hill, hoar and treeless, gold was glimmering. Their guest stood there with head uplifted, hair unbraided, harp strings they heard in his hand ringing, at his feet they saw the fallow golden corn sheaf lying. Then clear his voice a song began, sweet, unearthly, words in music woven strangely in a tongue unknown. Trees stood silent, and men unmoving, marveling, hearkened. Middle-earth had known for many ages neither song nor singer, no sight so fair had eyes of mortal since the earth was young, seen when waking in that sad country long forsaken. No lord they had, no king nor council, but the cold terror that dwelt in the desert, the dark shadow that haunted the hills and the boar forest. Dread was their master. Dark and silent, long years forlorn, lonely waited the hall of kings, house forsaken without fire or food. 
first paragraph first. What do we think about this guest now? What do we think about the kid? He seems to have vanished. Now, maybe he just slipped out when they weren't paying attention, but that's not their understanding of things, right? Um, he seems to have vanished as if by magic from inside this building that they were guarding, right? And then they look around and he's not there, right? And they're finding him and they can't find him until the sun, until we have the dramatic reveal. High upon a hill, hoar and treeless, gold was glimmering, right? And they find him there. And he's playing his harp. And they see the corn sheaf, the fallow golden corn sheaf lying at his feet. And then he begins to sing a song, sweet, unearthly words and music woven strangely in a tongue unknown. And the trees stand still and listen. And the men, unmoving, marveling, hearken. Now, they've never heard music before, right? Middle-earth had known for many ages neither song nor singer, we're told, right? Um, so music was new to them. Okay. So what do you think? Numenorean kid? It seems like you'd think he'd have to be, right? What's the alternative? If he's not a Numenorean boy, for some reason cast up in a ship on his own. Yeah, see, Bruce, increasingly, this begins to... So, King Sheev, in the context of everything we've learned in the Notion Club papers, right? At first, the story of King Sheev sounds like a Numenorean story, right? Or like maybe a, a garbled version of the story of the Numenorean landing. And it's still possible that it could be something like that, right? But what is it connected with? So let's assume for a moment. Let's assume for a moment that that is indeed what it is, right? That it's a garbled Numenorean myth. Garbled by these, because these people don't know anything. Right? No lord they had, no king nor council, but the cold terror that dwelt in the forest. So these poor people have never heard music before and who have just dwelt with the cold terror in the in the desert, right? Um, you know, having no company but the dark shadows that haunt the hills and the boar forest. Dread was their master, right? So these, these poor unhappy people who have never heard music before, you know, oh, like this experience they're having, this is amazing, right? So they are coming into, uh, they're coming into contact with a, um, a culture far beyond theirs, right? And not just beyond theirs, but alien to theirs, different from theirs. Um, and they're being shown things that they never imagined before, but in a sense, their whole culture has been waiting for this, right? It's not just that they were a dark culture that had never seen the light. They were waiting for the light, right? Dark and, uh, dark and silent, long years lo forlorn, lonely waited the Hall of Kings. Hall of Kings is the subject of that sentence. The Hall of Kings has been waiting, lonely and forlorn for long years, dark and silent. Right? That's the syntax of that sentence. House forsaken without fire or food. No one's lived there. But it's there. There's like a Hall of Kings, at least a metaphorical Hall of Kings. Right? There hasn't been any king. Forever so long, 
but there's a hall of kings they're waiting for a king right so there is this sense of destiny that is put onto this version of the story right and here that you know the foundling boy from on the ship from the sea fits into this like a like a key in a lock right like a hand in a glove so it begins to sound like a sort of quasi allegorical myth right a myth of a quasi-allegorical myth of what happened when the Numenoreans arrived, right? Like this isn't literal. This story isn't literal, right? Um, even the way that the darkness and the dread and everything, like the, this country sounds really, really, really sad, right? Uh, extremely sad, exaggeratedly sad even indeed, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think that is likely what we're... Um, what we're seeing here, that this is, again, a sort of an, alleg uh, a, a, an abstracted, uh, sort of semi-allegorized version of, you know, the, uh, the unenlightened uh, lands before the Numenorians came. Then the Numenorians come and fulfill this sort of destined place, right? In retrospect, it looks like, you know, that, that knowing what we know after the fact, right? Um, it's you know this was this was clearly you know they, they they didn't just arrive out of the blue they have taken up their destined place this is again this is seen the whole story seen from the other angle the Numenorians might think of themselves only as exiles right uh, doomed to misery but the thing looks very different from the other point of view right they have come and they have brought wealth and peace and music and art and things that these poor people never even imagined. Right. Um, the Numenorians are being made both happier and more, um, uh, both happier and more, uh, um, um, uh, you know, um, well, gracious, you know, than the Numenorians probably were. <laughs> they probably were not in a great mood when they landed. Right. Uh, maybe not even enormously friendly right off the bat. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, but again, the primary emphasis is on, uh, and, and again, remember the context right before, remember the things that Alfwina is thinking, right? Alfwina is thinking about how like, oh man, things are going straight to the dogs, right? Things are going swiftly downhill in like two generations. We've already lost so much, but this, this story, this, uh, this song that Treowine, uh, sings contains the memory of the one eucatastrophic reversal of that, right? When things used to be bad and then wham, they got way, way better, like overnight. When all of a sudden the Numenorians show up and woo, that's where we got all these things, right? And from there, of course, it's the decline that Alfwina is now near the tail end of, right? But it gives the whole thing a sense, um, Bruce, it does sound almost like a story where like the gods have come among us, right? That's the tone of the story. And James, I too was thinking if this story is a literal story, right? I mean, if we're supposed to understand that this story is historical and not a sort of allegorized myth, right? If we're to understand this story as historical, James, I'm going with Elf over Numenorian every time, right? That I could believe that for some reason an Elf child ends up washed up on the beach, right? Um, and a lot of the things that are, uh, the descriptions that are given of him, um, 
No sight so fair had eyes of mortal. Anyway, a lot of this sounds like it could be an elf who comes among them and, you know, his lineage goes on. I mean, that's a not unknown story, I think. Um, but I'm more inclined to think of this as, uh, uh, as sort of allegorical. But again, James, I think it's important and relevant because that glimpse of the land, notice again, what's, what's missing as a Numenorean story, what's missing any sense that the land this dude came from is lost, right? It's not that just he's been misplaced, right? You know, like this boat washes up with this perfectly serviceable child in it. And, you know, no one is saying like, well, you know, is somewhere, is there somebody we're, you know, looking for this kid, right? Is that, is, 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 is this kid on milk cartons somewhere else out in the West to see, right? Um, no. And there's not even any, there's not even any sense that like, oh, well, it's too bad that his island sank into the sea, but uh, he's here now. So that's cool. Um, there's no sense of the loss of Numenor. That doesn't enter into this. It doesn't seem to enter in this story at all. We've not gotten a, 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 the faintest glimpse of it. Instead, what we have is this idea that this kid came from somewhere and where he came from is amazing, right? He came from this magical, immortal land of light and wealth and beauty. Is that Numenor or is that Valinor, right? Is it elven home? Um, we saw already that um, we saw already that uh, the um, sorry, lost my train of thought. Um, what was I saying? Uh, Numenor lost. Yes. Okay. Right. We saw already that the the mythic impact of the Numenorean story in Middle Earth is to transmit the desire for the far west. Right. And this story seems to partake of that same thing. It doesn't remember the exile. It doesn't remember the lamentation. This is a myth that is remembering the glory of the West. Right? Full stop. No glory of the West. That was glory of the West. Oh, too bad it's fallen. Right? No, no, no. There's no touch of that here. Instead, it's just to the West, there is a land which is full of like harps and corn and and you know beautiful children lining up to be your king right that's 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 the myth right and it seems to therefore fit very neatly into um the longing the sea longing right the desire to discover the west to sail out into the west and hope to find whatever it is however one does right um so that i think is uh kind of an interesting way in which we can see um in which we can see these uh the these these myths kind of kind of coming together so in that sense james i was thinking elf too uh that was my, my first thought when i was rereading this when i'm like is this guy a numenorean or an elf i'm not even really sure um but in the end i think in a sense it doesn't actually matter um it, in a sense he's both right he is the west um, he is he is Numenorean in the sense that he is the West come among us, right? To bring us out of the darkness temporarily, um, to enrich us and lead us and help us. But he is an elf in the sense that uh, he represents a tie to the uh, and a, 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 a link back to the, the glory of the West, which remains, right? Um, yeah. 
theoretically, James, it could be a Numenorian boy, but years before the fall, but see, years where I would think he would have a set of Numenorian parents who'd be coming to collect him. I know it could be, you know, both parents died and whatever. There, there are ways in which we can explain this story. Um, but again, it just, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that kind of story. It doesn't feel like a historical story, right? It feels like a myth. It feels, it feels like an allegory. Um, oh, and, um, Bruce, you're absolutely right. Um, it also has that Orpheus touch, right? It's not just that the people are amazed to hear it, but the uh, the the trees stood silent as well, right? It, it, there is a there is a little um, glimpse of of the Orpheus uh, myth in there as well, um, which well, I'm not sure if that makes me inclined more towards Numenor or Elvenholm, honestly. Uh, it could kind of be made either way, I think, perhaps. But um, anyway, uh, let's keep going. Sheev they called him, whom the ship brought them, a name renowned in the North Countries ever since in song, but a secret hidden his true name was in tongue unknown of a far country, where the falling seas wash western shores beyond the ways of men since the world worsened. The word is forgotten, and the name perished. Their need he healed, and laws renewed, long forsaken. Words he taught them, wise and lovely. Their tongue ripened in the time of Sheev to songs and music. Secrets he opened, runes revealing, riches he gave them, reward of labor, wealth and comfort from the earth calling, acres plowing, sowing in season, seed of plenty, hoarding and garner, golden harvest for the help of men. The hoar forest in his days drew back to the dark mountains. The shadow lifted, and shining corn, wheat, white ears of wheat, whispered in the breezes where waste had been. The woods blossomed. Okay, so... This certainly makes him sound divine, right? Um... Certainly makes him sound divine. I, um, the two things that I would pair together, my two primary pieces of evidence, if I wanted to try to prove that this was a, a sort of an allegorical myth rather than even a garbled version of a historical account, is this passage in the description of the darkness of the land beforehand, right? The people, the, the Longobards were a little bit too miserable, <laughs> to be historical right i mean it, again it sounded very much like uh, an abstraction right and this i don't care whether he's an elf or a man he's a boy right um seriously does he seriously know um like uh, advanced agricultural technology to teach them right do they, do they do they teach that in kindergarten back in numenor i mean maybe can't absolutely rule that out, I suppose. Um, but that seems a little much to ask, I think. Um, uh, how does he renew long forsaken laws? How did he know what the laws were? I mean, I, I, again, did they, do they also teach jurisprudence in, in Numenorean kindergartens? I mean, again, I, you know, to me, that's not uh, now. Uh, actually, okay. 
I'm not going to lie. It would be fun to imagine a Numenorean kindergarten curriculum, which includes jurisprudence, philology, uh, uh, songwriting, and advanced agricultural technology. However, I don't think so, right? I don't think so. Here, he sounds much more like a god than anything else, right? This sounds like a direct blessing from heaven, like he is a god who's coming to dwell among them and pull the people up out of their darkness, out of their dread and fear and miserable life, uh, and to raise them. Again, the, the, re the, the, the renewing of the laws is the thing that is particularly striking to me there, right? He heals their need and laws renewed long forsaken, right? Um, it's the restoring of the good, you know, of, 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 of the good that they have. They have declined, right? There are a couple that, that the Hall of Kings, right, is one piece of evidence. The old laws, which have apparently been forsaken, is another piece of evidence uh, that there were, um, that things have not always been quite so bad in the world of the Longobards, right? Um, but that they have declined from something. Um, and so he's restoring them to that which they have lost. Um, but again, all of this makes perfect sense. You don't have to imagine that quite extraordinary Numenorean kindergarten curriculum if we think of this allegorically, right? If King Sheev is not, in fact, an individual person uh, or, you know, a historical figure, but if he is a sort of a personification of the Numenoreans come to us, seen totally from the point of view of the people of Middle-earth, right? This is the, the, the myths of the Numenorean exiles themselves are myths about loss, the loss of Numenor, the loss of the straight road, the loss of, the, uh, of access to the West, right? Being banished from those things. Those are the Numenorean myths, but the Middle-earth myths, right? The, uh, the native myths are the myths of how they had fallen down into darkness and feared forgotten song, their language had worsened, their culture had worsened, uh, the darkness and shadow and fear and the, and the dark forest uh, was overwhelming them right from the mountains that stalked behind them. I love the idea of mountain stalking. Um, and all of these things were driven back, right? The shadow lifted, the woods blossomed, and uh, their need was healed by the sudden, miraculous, and unexpected coming of the king, right? Um, this lordly man uh, uh, among men with this uh, miraculous ability. Um, yeah, yeah. So, again, I don't want to, I don't want to make too much of it, but um, that's just, that, that seems to me the kind of story that this is. Now, Trayowina finishes, right? And Alfwina, who didn't want to tell the story himself, stands up and adds an addendum, right? He finishes the story. His friend's already finished the story, but it's not, not quite enough. He adds, seven sons he begat, sire of princes, men great of mood, mighty-handed and high-hearted. From his house cometh the seed of kings, as songs tell us, fathers of the fathers, who before the change in the elder years the earth governed, that northern kingdoms named and founded shields of their people. Sheev begat them, Sea Danes and Goths, Swedes and Northmen, 
Franks and Frisians, folk of the islands, swordmen and Saxons, Swabians, Angles and the Longobards, who long ago, beyond Mirkwudu, a mighty realm and wealth won them in the Welsh countries, where Alfwina, Eadwina's son in Italy, was king. All that has passed. Okay. What does... Why did he feel compelled to add this bit? Or rather, to ask that question in a more sensible way, what does this bit that he adds add, in fact, to the myth? It links it to their history. I would say that it's linked to their history doesn't make it enormously less mythically allegorical than it was before, necessarily, right? It says that Sheev was the forefather of all the kings, right? All the peoples. Sea Danes, Goths, Swedes, Northmen, Franks, Frisians, the lot. Right, you name it. Swabians, check. Langobards, absolutely. Wait a second. I thought he came to the Langobards. No, he's the forefather of the kings of the Langobards. Well, okay, that's where he lived. Fine, sure. Okay, that's easy. But, again, we're seeing... So all of the kings are descendants of King Sheev. Okay. Again, that historical claim does not seem to me to be like, oh, and this is how we know that King Sheev was a real individual person, right? But rather, this is our history, right? Our modern history. We are connecting our modern world to this mythic story. Right? It's not just a story. And, you know, we are descended from this. We, who are in rapid decline, remember, Alphawina began by pointing out, um, are, have all, we have all benefited from King Sheev, right? From that which came across the sea and blessed all of us. And all of us are descended from it. All of us have been blessed by it. The, uh, sire of princes, men of great mood, mighty-handed and high-hearted, the descendants of King Sheev have gone on to become leaders all over the place, right? We have all, that blessing has filtered down to all modern lands, not just one specially, but all of them, right? Um, but it's all, it's all past, right? Uh, everything, all of the glory that we have. He's like using the myth to contextualize both their history and, in a sense, their futures, right? Um, all that has passed. The The decline has come. The darkness is returning, right? The shadows are back. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, and... Bruce is thinking about biblical echoes, you know, the echoes of Genesis about, um, you know, about, uh, you know, Esau, the sons of Noah, or, you know, Father Abraham and all that stuff. Yes. I don't know that I could explain it easily, Bruce. But biblical parallels... It might be generally apt here, but isn't... I don't know, feel right. For the one hand, Tomas, as you point out, um, it's not all peoples, 
it's all the Germanic peoples, right? Uh, yes, that is to say, this has a this is a very Germanic feel to it, right? Um, uh, not so it's sort of parallel to the Genesis stories in those ways, right? That like, I mean, you can kind of do a King Sheev is to the Germanic peoples as Abraham is to the Jews, sort of analogy, right? But I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm not sure that in the end that it's a helpful parallel. I mean, it is a parallel, but I'm not sure that it's a helpful parallel. Anyway, um, and there I think I must end for tonight, said Loudham, with a sudden change of tone and voice that startled us. So he's just been telling his story. And then, and he's been speaking as Alfwina, because he experienced things from Alfwina. He was Alfwina in his vision, right? And he's telling the story from Alfwina's perspective. And then he breaks the frame by speaking himself, Eri Loudham, right, uh, in the first person. And there I think I must end for tonight, said Loudham, with a sudden change of tone and voice that startled us. We jumped like men waked suddenly from a dream. It seemed as if one man had vanished and another had sprung up in his place. So vividly had he presented Alfwina to us as he spoke. Quite plainly, I had seen him standing there, a man very like Eri, but not the same, rather taller and less thick, and looking older and grayer, though by his account he was just Eri's age, it seemed. I had seen the glittering of his eyes as he looked round and strode out. The hall and the faces I saw in a blur behind him, and Treowina was only a dim shadow against the flicker of far candles as he spoke of King Sheev, but I heard the wind rushing above all the words. Next meeting, Treowina and I will go on again, if you want any more of this, said Loudham. Alfwina's tale is nearly done, and after that we shall flit more quickly, for we shall pass further and further away from what Stainer would call history, in which old Alfwina really walked, at least for the most part, I guess. Okay. Um, uh, so... Notice... <laughs> I keep referring to our Notion Club papers discussions in exploring the Lord of the Rings over the last two weeks, especially last night, um, because last night we were talking about the passage right before the A. Arundel was a Mariner poem begins in the Hall of Fire, and Frodo is experiencing Elvish song, and he becomes enchanted. And the way that that's described sounds very Raymer-ish to me. Um, the experience that he has reminds me a lot of some of Raymer's experiences. Um, and of course, they have a thing in common, right? Both in the Notion Club paper. Remember, they were explicitly talking about fairy and drama, right? Jeremy made the link to fairy and drama explicitly when Raymer was explaining that sense of enchantment, that art taken to the logical extreme so that it doesn't just help you to imagine the story in your own mind it actually makes the story, enacts the story around you, as Raymer says, happens in your dreams, right? You are, you yourself can create fairy and drama in your dreams. Um, uh, and it can happen in communication with others. You can be part of somebody else's story. That's kind of what time travel and space travel is like, right? So on the one hand, um, uh, there on the one hand, we get um, 
this is an example of fair, almost a Farian drama, right? That Loudham's account was so compelling that the people listening, right? Uh, Nicholas Guildford, the narrator in particular, um, was totally drawn into the story, right? And felt it jarring when Loudham said he had to stop. But of course, it's more than that, right? He, Guildford, describes having actually seen Althuina, right? How he kind of looked like Loudham, but wasn't exactly the same, and um, all that stuff, right? Uh, so there seems to have been fairy and drama happening, as if Loudham and Jeremy were not only doing space and time travel themselves, but were themselves the vehicle for, or like the, the, the no, the vehicle, um, the vehicle for all of the other people in the room to be time traveling, right? They themselves saw Alfwina, right? They heard Alfwina. It was like they themselves were given the same vision of Alfwina that Loudon himself had. Um, as if this particular vehicle of time travel is like contagious, right? Because it's associated with storytelling, because it's associated with art, and thus with enchantment, um, because the kind of remember time travel starts with sympathetic listening, right? Um, empathetic listening, listening to a meteorite, for instance, and hearing its story, which enables you to travel there and to see those things yourself, right? So here we see in a different way than he does in the context of elf song, like with Frodo and Rivendell, we see Tolkien kind of exploring theoretically this idea of art which transports you and in more than just a figurative sense, right? Um, okay. Well, there indeed, I think I must end for tonight. A couple of you are pointing out that uh, when I said that, and there I think I must end for tonight, uh, you didn't realize that I was reading the next slide and thought I was just saying that because it is, of course, uh, we are, of course, come to the end. Um, but uh, we're quite, quite close to where I was trying to get anyway. So I think I shall take Loudham's words as a sign uh, and, in fact, end uh, here for tonight. And we'll pick up there next time. Um, we're going to look at some of the, uh, so go through all of the, basically the appendices and stuff that comes next to the Notion Club papers, all the other materials. Uh, we'll pick through and I'll, I'll, I'll isolate some of those things that I want to talk about a little bit. Certainly I'm interested, as you would guess, in the projections that Tolkien gave of where he thought the story was going after that. I would also urge you, because um, there's going to be a bunch of the, the uh, epilogue, sort of quasi-epilogue materials that are appendix, I mean, quasi-appendix materials, that I might, you know, I, there's a bunch of it I might not go over in detail in, in class next time. So I would encourage you, strongly encourage you, bring questions or send me questions uh, by email uh, for next time. Um, uh, Olson at signumu.org, or Corey.Olson at signumu.org, I should say. Um, uh, Corey.Olson at signumu.org. Uh, send, me, send me questions. Uh, that you would like things you would like to talk about for next time. We may end up with some extra time there. I'm not going to go on and start the drowning of Anadune next time. We're going to finish the Notion Club papers, but if we have extra time, uh, and if I especially if I see that several of you are interested in uh, um, uh, in uh, um, uh, if, in you know same kinds of things, right? Um, so anyway, 
feel free to send me questions. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about them next time. Uh, and we'll definitely finish Notion Club papers next week. Thanks, everybody. And I'll see you next time. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.